Okay. Now, yeah, Mark 11 was kind of a dirty trick. I picked Mark 11. If you ever, who heard me preach the first time on Palm Sunday? Okay, I picked Mark 11 for the triumphal entry, and that's why I just did the first part. And you all seemed to like it, so I was just like, well, I'll just preach through Mark 11. And I didn't realize how heavy Mark 11 was. So if I offend you, I'm sorry. This is, I'm just trying to be faithful to the text, and making a sermon is kind of like baking a cake. And sometimes this is what you get. All right, uh, so in Tulsa, it's hard to get away from faith. Uh, especially faith as it is described in uh, Mark chapter 11. Uh, for years in Tulsa, we've had the uh, City of Faith Towers at ORU as just a monument to the prosperity gospel. Down in southeast Tulsa, we have, oh, I guess Broken Arrow, we have the uh, Rama Bible College teaching the word of faith, who teach explicitly that faith is a metaphysical law of the unseen realm, which can be exploited, literally can be exploited to just name it and claim it and uh, write your ticket with God. Uh, I mean, in this town, I've seen Jehovah Junior bumper stickers, you know, and honestly, living in Tulsa, I don't even bat an eye when someone just denies the harsh reality around them with something like, I don't receive that. Oh, okay. You don't receive that. In, fa in fact, Tulsa has the odd distinction of being the only city outside of the holy city of Jerusalem herself where, where visitors actually have Jerusalem syndrome. Have you heard Jerusalem syndrome? Does anyone know what Jerusalem syndrome is? This is a real thing. Uh, in Jerusalem syndrome, uh, it involves biblically-themed Obsessive ideas, delusions, and hallucinations triggered by a traveler's visit to Jerusalem, whereby a person who just seemed like just some guy or some person with like devoid of any warning signs becomes, you know, they become psychotic at arrival and random tourists kind of snap and think that they've become Moses or Elijah or even Jesus. And then after you take them out of Jerusalem or if you wait three weeks, they just snap out of it, and they go on living their life personally, like perfectly normal the rest of their lives. And uh, we have this in Tulsa. And in Tulsa, but in Tulsa, people don't mistakenly think they're a Bible character. In Tulsa, people just come, people just come to Tulsa, and then they start thinking that they can, like, use faith to do things. I'm not mocking or joking or cracking a joke. I'm serious. This is, this is a real thing that happens. I guess police officers re receive training about this. But in Tulsa, people... Pe People come, normal people come to Tulsa, and then they feel they have faith. And, the, and often this faith gets them to do very dangerous things or has them disturb the peace or even get arrested. And afterwards, when, after they, the three weeks or they leave Tulsa and they're just back to normal, they say that this verse in Mark 11, the proverbial faith to move mountains, actually is partially responsible for triggering this thing that, that they had a delusion about. And so... Uh, I was like, gosh, this is kind of heavy, serious stuff. And so how do I preach on this? Well, if 11 years in Tulsa have taught me anything, it's that how we interpret Jesus' comments about moving mountains in faith says a lot more about us than it says about faith. Uh, but first, let me review uh, verses 11 through 14 from last week before we begin with verse 20. Uh, the, uh, verses 11 through 14 are 
a split narrative. They're the first half of this fig tree story. And if you notice in Mark 11, the fig tree story kind of splits to be a kind of a picture frame because Mark wants you to really focus in on the picture, which is uh, Jesus's very drastic behavior in the temple. Now, he doesn't get like a cat of nine tails. Jesus is not drawing blood with like a real Roman whip with like spikes and metal and nails in it. He's not doing that. But he just makes a, but he does make a whip out of corn out of cords, and he starts whipping around and clearing livestock and throwing over tables and completely makes a scene. And it's a kind of, oh, what did he mean by that almost? And so to um, explain that, Mark provides the fig tree narrative on the first half where he curses the fig, fig tree, and then today where the fig tree is withered up from the roots, and it's to help you understand what Jesus is saying there. Uh, now, basically, in verses 11 through 14, what happens is Jesus walks into the temple one evening, looks around the temple in disgust, and leaves. The next day, on the way back to the temple, he sees a fig tree and leaf. He's hungry. He looks for something to eat, finds nothing, and curses the tree. Uh, the only command that God ever gave the plants and the animals back in Genesis chapter 1 was to bear fruit. Essentially, Jesus declares to the tree, Amen. Have it your way. If you don't want to submit to my father's instructions to bear fruit, then suffer the consequences. In fact, one verse after human beings were created, the very first of the 613 commandments God ever gives us is to bear fruit. In Genesis 1.28, I'm reading out of the CSB this morning. Who's heard of the CSB? Have you heard of the CSB? No? You've heard? Okay. It's... Uh, it's a really good translation. As a scholar, I like the CSB a lot. It's new, but don't hold that against it. It was made in 2018, 2017. It's the Southern Baptist Convention's brand new translation of the Bible. It's actually a revision of the HCSB. Who's heard of the HCSB? No one? Okay. That was the Southern Baptist Convention's translation of the Bible back in like 1999. Uh, it's, not, it's funded by the Southern Baptists, but it's actually 17 different denominations of evangelical and non-denominational people, like scholars, conservative scholars, got together to make this. Uh, but in verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1, God blesses them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. This is right after God created man and woman in his image. The next verse he says is to be fruitful and multiply. And... Something I notice here is blessing and commands are intimately linked in Genesis 1, and then throughout the rest of Scripture, blessings and commands are kind of woven into each other. They're kind of baked into the cake together. And Mark's gospel is no exception. So when Jesus curses the fig tree, it's on account of Jerusalem's persistent disobedience, or the temple's persistent disobedience, which has resulted in this inevitability of destruction. Speaking of verse 14, when Jesus curses the fig tree... All right. Here is one of the rare spots where the original Greek is particularly illuminating. Okay, I know you're like, oh no, he's trying to show off. He's going to start talking about things we don't understand. Oh, listen, guys, I, I, I agree. Usually when someone in the pulpit tries to start talking about the Greek, it's just a waste of time, and they probably don't know what they're talking about sometimes. I don't know. But this, stay with me on this one. This matters. Uh, when Jesus said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, the tense he used here is the aorist. Now, this is a verb tense we don't have in English, but Greek does have. And it's related to the word horizon. Who's seen a horizon before? You can see things coming at you, you know? Or 
If you're looking behind you, you can see what you've done. Uh, the IRS deals with action, listen to this, that's as good as done, even though that action has not been completed yet. Uh, so it's, there's this ah prefix. The ah is like a negating prefix, like abnormal. Abnormal's not normal, right? So aorizo, the aorist, is, it's the tense without a horizon. And at the risk of oversimplification, the aorist is what you hear when you say things like, the check is in the mail. Don't turn off the utilities, the check is in the mail. Or I now pronounce you man and wife. If you walk up to somebody on the street, and, or just a couple standing there on the street and say that to them, they're gonna be like, what? A better, maybe this is a more real life example of the aorist. Uh, consider, uh, consider a kneel down situation at the end of a football game. Uh, the result is already decided, there's a full set of downs, and regardless what the time on the clock says, there's nothing that happens, the game is over. Now this aorist tense is so important for understanding faith today. Uh, it's, it's related to the promises of God. We consider ourselves already forgiven even though Christ's second coming and judgment day have not actually happened yet. The aorist tense is why Christians just in culture, we say things like, I'm saved. We don't say, I hope to be saved on judgment day. We say, I'm saved because our promised salvation is already as good as done because the promise comes from God. Now today, as we work through the second half of this fig tree narrative, we're going to focus on what everyone really wants to know. What is the faith that can move mountains and how can it work for us? To echo Jesus' own words, how do we believe in our heart to get whatever we ask for in prayer? Um, Let's go, to, let's go to verse, okay. Uh, can we go to verse uh, 1120? All right, so Mark 1120. Uh, Mark 1120. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw a fig tree withered from the roots up. Jesus is not going to let his mouth write a check the Father won't cash. The point of this verse is not that Jesus can curse a fig tree and make it wither. That's what dying fruitless trees do. They wither. Just because God the Father put an exclamation point on Jesus' curse and made it happen right away, that doesn't really matter either. It's spectacular, but it's kind of missing the point. The point is that Jesus looked at an ordinary fig tree, a dying fig tree, through scriptural eyes. He saw something mundane, and he applied scripture to it, and it became a sign of God's judgment against the against the temple for its unfruitful disobedience. This, this is the aorist at work. The aorist way of thinking further just underlines the way Jesus curses the tree. He isn't doing anything to the tree. The tree was already as good as dead anyway. He's not cursing it because he's angry per se. I mean, he's angry that the tree is disobeying, but that's not why he's cursing it. Instead, Jesus is cursing the tree to acknowledge, I don't have any faith in Jerusalem, that she will bear fruit. My faith is in the Lord. And since I know that Israel can't bear fruit of her own accord, even though judgment hasn't come yet, it's still already too late. Jesus on earth is simply acknowledging the unseen reality of Jerusalem's spiritual state. 
like in real time right then. And then the curse got results because God in heaven is also simply, is simply acknowledging the reality of what's happening on the ground in Jerusalem. It's like the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is important because this is how we use faith. It's a horrible word. When, spiritually pe when spiritual people nowadays perceive a sign, it's by projecting their own experiences and desires onto the Bible. They hear voices, call it the Holy Spirit, and then go to the Bible to try to figure out what the voices in their head meant. This is, that sounds like witchcraft, but it's what so much of like modern Christian or Christian spirituality is. This is backwards. We shouldn't do it this way. We must see signs like Jesus does. First, we begin by investing the time and energy it takes to know the Bible. Sorry. Then we experience life in the natural world with Scripture in our ears. So when we see something, just, some, just anything, God can speak to us through anything we see because we remember the law of God written on our hearts. Okay, verse 21. Then Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you have cursed has withered. All right. Jesus looked at a dying tree, stated the obvious from the text, from, from the perspective of Scripture, and Peter doesn't get the message. Peter cannot see the biblical sign because Peter has no idea, Peter has no idea what's in this book. He doesn't hear what Scripture is saying, kind of like us sometimes. Forty years from now, Peter is still never going to see it coming when the temple is destroyed. Oh, sorry. Uh, verse 22, Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Jesus is confronting Peter's real problem. Where Peter just saw a tree, Jesus saw a sign of disobedience. Excuse me. Peter didn't see the tree as a sign of the teaching that the works of men's hands cannot bear fruit. Not only does Peter fail to understand the sign, even worse, he is amazed at the miracle. So Jesus has to remind Peter, and probably us too, that if you are scriptural, if you're a biblical, if you're a biblical person, miracles, signs, and wonders do not provide your soul with sustenance. Deuteronomy 8.3, what did Jesus quote before Satan? Man does not live by bread alone. You cannot live by miracles alone, but you live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. But Jesus said, have faith in God. I know. He said, have faith in God. Whenever the word faith is involved, sometimes we want to interpret faith as just this gateway drug to personal power. I mean, listen... I like the Rhema lights too. I really, really do. But faith is not some universal law of creation like gravity that just governs the unseen realm. Neither is faith some magic power in us to be sown as a seed to get health, wealth, and prosperity. Sorry, Oral. I mean, what does Deuteronomy 13 say? I mean, Deuteronomy 13 is really important. Deuteronomy is important, but Deuteronomy 13, what does Deuteronomy 13 say? It says, well, I'm just going to read the last verse because of time constraints. But it's up there, Deuteronomy 13. 
I'll, I'll read the first and last verse. If a prophet or someone, oh, here it is. If a prophet or someone who has dreams arises among you and proclaims a sign or, one, sign or wonder to you, and that sign or wonder he has promised you comes about, but he says, let us follow other gods which you have not known, and let us worship them. Do not listen to that prophet's words or to that dreamer, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You must follow the Lord your God and fear him. You must keep his commands and listen to him. You must, where do we follow his commands? Where do we find his commands? Sorry, in scripture. If someone comes to your town and works miracles, but then leads people away from what's inscribed in this text, that person is a false prophet. Jesus' teaching did not have authority because he had miracles to back him up. No, Jesus' teaching was legitimate because it was faithful to God's word found in the Torah. His loyalty to the text, Jesus' loyalty to the text is what validated his miracles, not the other way around. I'll say that again. Jesus' miraculous signs did not endorse his message. His faithful interpretation of scripture made it okay to accept his message as coming from God. So, sorry. Jesus tells, so when Jesus tells Peter, have faith, it's because Peter must understand that God always stands by his word. This is a matter of life or death. Blessing and cursing, we must choose life. But wait, there's more. Verse 23. I assure you, this is Mark chapter 11, verse 23. I assure you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. And finally, the good stuff. Uh, or is it the good stuff? Here I have to insist that you hear this correctly. This is not magic. Jesus is not pushing the right buttons to get God to work for him in a way he wants. How do you move God's will to work for you? I mean, God has already set his will in stone. It's right here in scripture. It will not pass away. Trying to, trying to twisting Jesus' words here and calling it faith doesn't make it any less incorrect. Well, then what is Jesus really saying? Well, if you remember, the curse that Jesus pronounced on the fig tree back in verse 14 was in the aorist tense. Jesus commands the Bible here and uses the aorist as well. Be lifted up, be thrown. The mountain here is not something that we can magically move with our faith. The mountain is, some, the mountain is another biblical metaphor like the fig tree. It's taking this giant, potentially eternal thing and moving it and changing it in a way that only the power of God can. Because the only thing bigger and more powerful than a mountain and more eternal is God himself. Scripturally speaking, when Jesus tell us, tells us to have faith in God, he's not telling us to have faith in God that God will do anything we want if we just have enough faith. Instead, Jesus is teaching us, you must have faith in God that God will do everything according to his will. 
And where do we find his will? Then, when you believe that God's scriptural agenda is almighty, not his ability to do magic tricks, but that his scriptural agenda in the text is almighty, then, if the mountain is to be moved according to God's will in scripture, then it will be moved according to God's will in scripture. Now, it's interesting the way some people interpret this through the lens of a Disney movie, which is, as long as you can believe in your little heart hard enough that God can do anything you want, then God will magically be moved. That's not why here in verse 23, Jesus is mentioning your heart. He mentions your heart because this is where you make decisions. The heart in the Bible, the heart doesn't necessarily involve your emotions or your feelings or even your desires, except for when you let them affect your choices. The heart is necessarily where God writes his scripture in you. Oh, thank you. In our Disney culture, by contrast, believing with your heart is often associated with wishing upon a star. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, like really, really, really wanting something for Christmas. I mean, I never got a BB gun for Christmas, but I really wanted one. This is not faith. Verse 24. Therefore I tell you. Therefore I tell you. Everything you ask for and pray for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Well, I know I just said you could not get a BB gun for Christmas, but Jesus just sounds like he's saying you can have a BB gun for Christmas, so what's going on here? Verse 24 cannot make sense unless you understand the spirit of the aorist tense. Remember, which is, it's the yet-to-be-completed action that is already as good as done. If the thing for which you pray for is already promised to you according to God's will in Scripture, then it's only a matter of time. You will have it according to God's will. If we trust in God's promises, then we will act correctly with a kind of assuredness. Okay, then let's get down to brass tacks. What is the thing that I have been promised according to God's will in Scripture? If I can't have a BB gun, what should I be asking for in prayer and then believing that I have received? What comes out of Jesus' mouth next? Verse 25, and whenever you stand in, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Forgiving people. I don't know if I like where this passage is headed. Uh, You know, like, who really wants to forgive people? I mean, I don't want to forgive people, especially when I have something against him. The text says it's forgive someone who has something against you. Like, or sorry, forgive someone that you have something against. If you have something against someone, you don't want to forgive them. I don't want to do that. I want to kill trees. I want to move mountains and cast out demons. I mean, I want all that good stuff in verse 23. Never underestimate the power of Jesus to get everyone's hopes up and then just ruin it. Verse 26. But if you don't forgive, neither will your heavenly Father in heaven forgive you your wrongdoing. Honestly, 
I don't like this verse. And admittedly, some manuscripts do lack, they don't have it. So I understand why many, many modern translations don't have it. They look for any excuse to omit it. I mean, even the new CSB puts it down in a footnote. Uh, the NASB and the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the SBC's Bible from 1999, they keep it. But I think it belongs. Of course some manuscripts don't have it. This verse is, was just as troublesome 2,000 years ago as it is today. If I were a Bible copyist back then, I would have maybe accidentally on purpose left this on the cutting room floor too. As much as our modern hearts rage against the very notion, it's just too consistent with the rest of Mark. We must forgive. The seed of the gospel carries with it a consequence of inherent judgment if the seed does not bear fruit. We learned that last week. From Mark's perspective, the curse of unfruitful unforgiveness is inherently baked into the gospel of blessing itself. Or sorry, baked into the gospel of forgiveness itself. We receive God's grace and the gift of his seed in the teaching of the gospel. In response to this gift of grace, are we a soil that will bear fruit in forgiveness and flourish? Or are we a soil where the Lord's seed will remain unfruitful? Do we choose to commit to this gospel teaching, which contains both the promise of judgment and the promise of hope if we submit and forgive? These are fundamental questions in Mark. You can't expect God, according to Torah, to forgive you, and then you won't forgive others, according to Torah. Is it that our Father is unable to forgive us if we don't forgive? No. Do we forgive in order to earn forgiveness? No. Remember Mark's use of the aorist. The sins for which you were declared completely forgiven on the cross. Okay, you were declared forgiven there. But when someone declares your sins to be forgiven, they're not forgiving you any more than they're moving a mountain or cursing a tree. It's when someone says you are forgiven, it's not they who are forgiving you. It's the promise of the Father who forgives you. The promise which comes with a warning. If this is truly to be a forgiveness for you on judgment day, you better remember to forgive others. It is God who ultimately judges, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. It is of little importance to me that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not conscious of anything against myself. But I am not justified by this. It is the Lord who judges me. So don't judge anything prematurely before the Lord comes. Being fruitful and multiplying isn't just God's blessing. It's also a command. The very God who promises you forgiveness also promises to withhold forgiveness from you if you withhold it from others. The forgiveness that you would like to receive for yourself on Judgment Day has to bear fruit today in the forgiveness that you show others. Uh, you know, I mean, in Acts 7.60, you don't need to go there, but in Acts chapter 7, verse 60, St. Stephen, the church's very first martyr, he got this right. He understood how forgiveness worked. There he is getting, like, stoned to death with rocks by a racist, angry mob while a young Paul is just sitting there holding the coats. And St. Stephen provides a powerful witness to, to Paul that I think really mattered someday. 
as Steve, what are Stephen's dying, what are his last words? What is his dying breath? Can anyone remember? Does anyone know? Raise your hand if you know. Oh, good. He says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Don't do not hold this sin against them. I mean, it sounds like St. Stephen's Bible had Mark eleven twenty six 26 in it. He understands the situation. I mean, that's not the thing we would be saying if we're getting hit to death by a bunch of hateful people with rocks. You know, I mean, I can be honest. Maybe in my intro this morning, maybe I was a little too enthusiastic in denouncing, you know, our fellow, our fellow Christians in Tulsa who, who get, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to hurt anyone's feelings or damage anyone's faith. I'm not trying to be divisive in the body of Christ. Uh, when, I disagree, when I say that, you know, the teachings of Rhema or the prosperity gospel aren't biblical. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to be a jerk about that, and if I was, I apologize. I mean, I don't, I, I, I'm not trying to get off comparing myself to them and then patting myself on the back. I mean, it's easy to, when you're comparing to someone who is untaught and unstable and who twists scripture to their own destruction. You know, it's easy to try to feel superior, and I don't want us to do that. This is not an us against them thing, because that's not what glorifies and honors God. I mean, just because we have our theology straight here, doesn't mean we'll get brownie points on Judgment Day. I mean, who do we think we are to judge another man's servant? Oh, sorry. I mean, so almost all of us in here are probably too biblically literate to misuse this passage on faith to promulgate Christian witchcraft. I mean, that is what it is. It's Christian witchcraft. I'm not denying that. But does God owe us a favor for that? I mean, so we know better than to abuse this for financial gain. But do we actually forgive people? Unforgiveness is rebellion too. And if you've ever spent any time in Rhema or any time in an ORU kind of Christian circle, you'll know 1 Samuel 15, 23, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. You know, I mean, it's a dangerous game. We, why is it witchcraft? It's witchcraft because we're trying to assert our agenda on the spiritual realm. When you don't forgive someone, that's powerful. You don't know what the forces you're playing with. It's dangerous. I mean, it's a very dangerous game we play with our forgiveness by the way we presume to withhold forgiveness from others. I mean, denying forgiveness is playing God. And he hates that. He said, God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. We're not allowed to touch that stuff. But look, I get it. Forgiveness is easier, send, is, is easier said than done. I mean, what if we, re, I mean, it's hard. What if we really want to forgive and just can't? I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, scare you into forgiving. I mean, who in here has really, really wanted to forgive someone for something, but just the bitterness, I mean, the bitterness was tearing you up inside and that other person didn't really care. They weren't even sorry, but you just knew for yourself you needed to forgive and you couldn't. Who's ever been there? Am I the only one? Yeah, and it's killing you. And you've tried and you've tried and you're grieved by the unforgiveness poisoning your lives. And now there's the scary verse that Jesus says about if you don't forgive your fellow, I'm going to withhold forgiveness from you. Are we just inevitably doomed to judgment day without hope? No. If our salvation ever ultimately rests on our ability to forgive, then we'd be already done for. That is not the gospel. And that's why God, to get our attention in the first place, Jesus had to play this beautifully executed, dirty trick about faith. God knows the only thing harder than moving a mountain is getting a petty human being to actually forgive someone. But Jesus is always one step ahead. 
In verse 23, he fully arouses our unforgiving little hearts with vainglorious delusions of power and grandeur. Jesus knows that deep down every human soul wants to kill trees, cast out demons, move mountains, uh, stone women caught in adultery. You know, basically any vulgar display of power socially acceptable at the time. That's what our sinful hearts want to do is exercise power over others. But then in verse 25, Jesus abruptly pivots and turns it back on us. You must forgive or else. The mountain we've needed to The mountain we've needed faith to remove all along is the unforgiveness in our hearts. That's the point. Jesus is not so subtly implying that instead of health, wealth, and prosperity, the things we need to be asking for in prayer is the grace to forgive others so that we will be forgiven and the grace to not judge others. The Arabs have a phrase, Al-Hebu Yakti Min Allah, which means... The love comes from God. Remember last week's sermon. You are just soil. Jesus is the sower. Forgiveness is a fruit of the gospel, which means Jesus alone can cause forgiveness to grow in you. We are at the mercy of Jesus to be able to forgive, and yet we will be held responsible on judgment day if we do not. Don't get scared. God is not setting you up to fail. He just doesn't want you to mess with him. We can't read Mark 11 to learn about faith without reading about faith in Mark 9, verses 14 through 20. The time is short, so I will quickly summarize the story in Mark chapter 9. In this story, a father came to Jesus with a boy possessed by a demon which the disciples could not drive out. Jesus asks how long he's been like this. The exasperated father tells him the gory details and then snaps off a, but if you can do anything, Have compassion on us and help us. The father's a little frustrated. He's been dealing with this kid for life, and the disciples were talking a big game and then failed, so he's a little frustrated. But the father's not really full of faith. But does Jesus condemn him? Does the earth split apart like on Korah and the gates of hell, like the gates of hell just open up before his feet? No. What does Jesus say in verse 23? If you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. This is good news. If Jesus can cast a demon out of a boy, he can cast unforgiveness out of you. Verse, I mean, and, and, and how does the father respond? Immediately the father of the boy cries out. He cries out in faith, I do believe, help my, unfer- help my unbelief. This is how we forgive. When you are overwhelmed by immovable mountains of unforgiveness in your heart, don't lose faith. Have faith in God like Jesus says in verse 23. Cry out to Jesus, I do believe, I do forgive, help my unforgiveness. It's not in Jesus' character to leave us hanging there. All right, he just wants us to despair of playing God. What possessed us to think we had the right to withhold forgiveness from anyone? We who are forgiven, the redeemed of the Lord. And what, who puffed up our pride to think that we could ever forgive on our own apart from Jesus anyway? Jesus went to the cross to forgive us so that we actually can forgive others. Well, well, what does that look like in real life? For your forgiveness to be real, it can't just be something you say. Come on, who's ever forgiven their spouse? I forgive you. What's wrong, honey? Nothing. All right. 
for forgiveness to be real, it must be spoken. It, does, well, it doesn't have to be spoken. It's often spoken, but you can show it in a touch. It, but it must bear fruit and restore your relationships. For forgiveness to be real, it must bear fruit and restore your relationships. Remember Jesus and the withered fig tree. So these are some quickly, some quickly I'm going to share some practical applications of what forgiveness might look like because, you know, apparently I don't conclude my sermons well and take it home. I know I don't. I'm working on it. Okay. So it's going to be a little rough and kind of shooting from the hip, so don't get offended. But employ, there's just some notes I wrote it. Employees and teachers, or sorry, employees and students, is it hard to submit to the authorities God has placed over you? Is it hard to make yourself carry out their directives with a good attitude and faithfully follow the, stru- follow the instructions to success and completion? I mean, especially when you have so much better ideas of just how to run things, and, just they, they, and they never give you a voice either. They never ask you. As long as they're not asking you to sin or break the law, forgiveness means submitfully obeying your bosses and instructions, not just in letter, but in spirit, okay? Carry that out. That means not hampering their agendas. That's what forgiveness means. Employers, teachers, and bosses, do you lord it over the people placed over you? Do you motivate through fear and have unreasonable expectations? Do you crucify and publicly shame people when they can't measure up in a, you know, in a group meeting setting, that's not reflecting the forgiveness of Christ. Forgiveness means using your authority to build people up and using your position of authority to, to strengthen people and to help them get better, not just to feed your ego. That, if, someone's, if someone blows it at work, you could easily have had that in private and not shamed them. Consumers of social media and the political news cycle Are you so caught up in the divisive American political news and its tribalism that it's just consumed your Christian identity? Is it possible in your mind for someone to belong to, to a different political party and still be a real Christian? Do you see the opponents on the other side of the aisle as genuine enemies? I'm not saying they're not. Some of them probably are. But forgiveness means loving your enemies. If you see someone with a bumper sticker you don't like and they have a flat tire or need a jump start, and you're the kind of good old boy that usually helps with that sort of thing, then forgiveness means you got to suck it up and go help them too. Sorry. You can't just keep driving. Well, unless it's that Jehovah Junior bumper sticker. You can just, just, but like anything political, you've got to go help them. Wives. Are you stuck with a workaholic and neglectful husband who never seems to notice or appreciate everything you do for him? Does he find his identity and his meaning in job, like in his job, instead of in his relationship with you, or even better, in his relationship with the Lord? Is he just oblivious to how insensitive he really is? Instead of being grateful, does he seem annoyed by your efforts to give him help and, and, the, better I, and the better ideas he clearly needs? Does he not even seem to care when he's wrong and not even want to talk about it? Is he so self-absorbed that his expectation of marriage seems to be for little more than a cabaret with laundry service? Forgiveness means the show must go on. Husbands, do you have ungrateful, disrespectful, and uncooperative, mean wives? Do you find it hard to continue to engage them with love and respect and invest in the relationship? Forgiveness means no silent treatment or withholding time and affection for punishment. Guys, husbands, we can't be silent with our wives. That is punishment and it is mean. We can't do any punishing, passive-aggressive behavior 
Forgiveness means rejecting passivity in your marriage and taking the initiative to bring your wife alongside you as you draw nearer to God. Forgiveness means no matter how out of line you think she is being, you pray for her and you pray with her and you do everything you can to reflect Christ to her. And yes, that means you initiate the prayer. You initiate the regular Bible study. And you do the prayer time together. This is what the word husband means. Husband means helping to grow something to be fruitful. You want to present your wife without spot or blemish as a healthy, fruitful tree to God because of your husbandry, your wife husbandry. Because the scripture states that it's God's will for our stonehold hearts to forgive, I'm going to end with the scripture here. We're going to start at 22, and we're going to go through 25. Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt God in his heart, but believes that what he will say will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray for and ask, Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Because the scripture states that it is God's will for our stone-cold hearts to forgive, then just like Jesus commanded the fig tree and said, never bear fruit again, in faith we can command the unforgiveness in our hearts to be taken up and thrown into the sea, and God will back it up because it's according to his will in scripture. The bitterness in our hearts will wither from the roots up. Have faith in God. And thank you for your time.